Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology. In this podcast, we aim to help people who are interested in the data space to get the learnings they need to take your career to the next level. We do this by listening to the stories that lessons learned and the mistakes of top industry leaders out there in the field today. My name is Felipe Flores. I am your host, and thank you so much for being here, for tuning in. I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. It's definitely been a blast bringing this to you, and I love getting the feedback from all the listeners, from all you guys, every week, and definitely for the last year. Today, we have a fantastic episode. We will be speaking with Martin Ford, who is a New York Times bestselling author, keynote speaker. He is a futurist, a software developer, and an entrepreneur. Martin has written three books that I have loved. And so it was a real honor to get to speak to him and interview him for the show. You'll see me being, or you'll hear me being very excited to speak with him. And as much as I tried to not go full fanboy while speaking with him, I could not help myself. So I apologize in advance. I was very, very excited. He's definitely somebody that I really look up to him quite a lot because of all the impressive work that he's done over the years. And I love his approach to being a futurist and being able to extrapolate current trends to engage people to have the conversations that we need to have now to prepare for the changes and the challenges that are coming in the future. So Martin is a futurist. He's an author. His New York Times bestselling book was called Rise of the Robots, Technology and the Threat of a Jobless Future. That was in 2015. His first book was called The Lights in the Tunnel, Automation, Accelerating Technology and the Economy of the Future. That was released in 2009. And his most recent book, is called Architects of Intelligence, The Truth About AI from the People Building It. In this book, Martin interviews people such as Joshua Bengio, Jeffrey Hinton, Jan LeCun, the three godfathers of deep learning. He speaks to Fefe Li, who is at Stanford and used to be head of AI at Google. He speaks to Demis Hassabis from DeepMind, Andrew Eng, and Ray Kurzweil, another one of my personal heroes, Nick Bostrom, etc. He has 23 different people that he has interviewed about the current state of AI and how it's going to look into the future. We have a lot of discussions around this. It's a really, really interesting discussion. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, this is Felipe, and today I'm speaking with Martin Ford. Martin, great to have you in the show. Thank you so much for making the time. Thanks for having me. Excellent. At the beginning of the interview, I always like to ask guests to give us an overview of their background and how you got to where you are today. How's that journey been for you? Well, I started out uh, studying computer engineering in college, and then I worked as an engineer for several years. Then I kind of got a little bit bored with that. I went back and got a business degree, an MBA, and then I worked in finance for a year or two and found that even much more boring than the engineering. So I decided to go back uh, more on the technical side, and I ended up starting a small software company in Silicon Valley. This was way back in the 1990s, so it was focused on actually Microsoft Windows software. And I ran that for many years. And as I ran that business, one thing I noticed was the dramatic impact that advancing technology and Moore's Law in general was having on even my small business. I mean, it started out in the mid-1990s that software where it was actually a tangible product. It was something that was shipped on CD-ROMs and you had to put it in a box and physically send it to the customers. And so there was work there for a variety of people at different skill levels to do that kind of thing. But even in my small business, I saw that evaporate very rapidly. And that's kind of what got me thinking about really the impact of technology on the economy, on the job market, on society in general. And that led me to write my first book, which was entitled The Lights in the Tunnel back in 2009. And that really made the argument that as artificial intelligence and robotics really took off, it was going to have a dramatic impact on the job market and the economy. And in particular, that a lot of jobs were simply going to disappear. They were going to be automated away. That was uh, an independently published book, but it did well enough that it got some notoriety and attention. And that led to an opportunity to write my second book, Rise of the Robots, which was published in 2015. And that was a book from a major publisher. So I got a lot more attention. And really, since then, I've kind of shifted my whole career to be basically a futurist, someone that really thinks about the future of AI and robotics and what it means for society and the economy. So now I spend most of my time talking about this issue, writing about this issue. I go around and do a lot of speaking engagements focused on this. 
I also do some work in the investment world. I work with uh, French bank Societe Generale and, and also their ETF division, Lixor, on, on an, actually an ETF called the Robotics and, and AI ETF from Lixor, which is focused on investing in this area. And um, I'm also involved in a startup company. So I do a variety of things that are kind of oriented around this whole idea that artificial intelligence is going to be a massive disruption. Massive indeed. And one thing that I was curious about was, which you've touched on a little bit, was um, how did you pick the themes for your work as an author? Because the theme itself has been so consistent over time, even though the change within AI and its impact to industry has been tremendous, but your focus was uh, so clear from the start. Could you tell us a bit more about where that came from? It, It sounds like it was during your time as an entrepreneur. Basically, it's kind of a long story because this concern that technology might have a big impact on the job market and jobs would be automated, it certainly doesn't start with me. Actually, it goes back 200 years, right, to the Luddite revolts in England. People have been worrying about this literally for hundreds of years, but so far, it's turned out to be kind of a false alarm. Actually, in Rise of the Robots, I even talk about the Triple Revolution Report, which was this port, a report presented to President Lyndon Johnson 50 years ago that argued this was going to be a huge, dramatic change in the U.S. economy. And of course, that didn't really pan out either. So there is a certain stigma attached to this idea in the sense that lots of people have worried about it before, but mm-hmm. it has never really been realized, right? So far, things have worked out. The economy has created new jobs. We haven't seen unemployment. So it has become an issue that many people don't take very seriously. And at the time I wrote my first book on this issue, making this argument back in 2009, this was something that was very much a marginalized, off-the-radar kind of issue. And I think you would have heard the term neo-Luddite, for example, which was almost a, a pejorative term used for people that still worried about this in spite of all the evidence to the contrary. So I wrote that book sort of against that headwind. And um, basically what it fundamentally argues and what I've really been saying since then is that, yes, it's true that history does say that this isn't something that we've had to worry about so far, but maybe this time is different. And that, of course, is always a dangerous thing to say and from the viewpoint of economists and certainly people that work in the financial world and so forth. So it's a rather provocative argument, but I think it is an argument that certainly has gotten a lot more traction since I wrote that first book in 2009. Oh, there still is a debate about it. There are many people that are still very skeptical, and that's a reasonable position to have because there is a lot of evidence to suggest that so far, at least things have worked out. But I mean, my view is that ultimately, artificial intelligence is going to become so powerful that it's almost inevitable that there's going to be a huge impact on employment simply because machines are going to reach a level of capability that really begins to compete with what a large fraction of the human workforce can do. I think that that's inevitable if you believe in the advance of technology and you believe that that our smart machines are going to get better and better. So I think ultimately that's a challenge that we're going to have to deal with. And I think it's probably not too far off that, that we're really going to see this disruption. In some ways, I think we're beginning to see kind of the leading edge of it already. Therefore, it's really important to begin to have an honest, meaningful conversation about what we're going to do about this as it develops. That's 100% true. And I think a lot of people don't realize how far this technology has come already and the initial glimpses of what it'll be able to do in the future. Could you tell us a bit more about what you've seen in your recent work as the current state of AI and the types of jobs that it could be impacting in the near future? Yeah, well, I mean, the driving force behind all of this is machine learning or more specifically deep learning is the really disruptive technology, which is we call that artificial intelligence, but really machine learning is a better term. It's really about algorithms that can look at massive amounts of data. And based on that, they can learn, they can figure out how to do things. And so we're definitely not talking about science fiction AI. We're talking about algorithms that can make decisions, that can solve problems, and most importantly, can learn. And this is already having an impact in fields like journalism, for example. You see systems that are able to look at a stream of data and based on that, figure out what is the interesting story in that data and then automatically generate a new story. And, you know, the largest media organizations are already using systems to do that. And I think everyone has read articles online that are, in fact, machine generated and probably has not realized it because you really can't necessarily tell. And this is a technology that's going to get better and better. And it's not just about journalism. It's going to be deployed across the board. I mean, anywhere that you're looking at data and then generating something 
comprehensible from that, whether it's a report, a news article, some sort of quantitative analysis, presentation, all of that is ultimately going to be susceptible to automation. So I think there's going to be a massive impact. And we're beginning, I think, already to see the leading edge of that on what we would call knowledge work or white collar work that is fundamentally routine in nature, where you're not so much creating something new, but really you're manipulating information in some relatively predictable way. That's going to be heavily automated. And that's a lot of very good jobs. It's not low skill jobs. It's not blue collar jobs. It's jobs that college graduates, even even people in some cases with graduate degrees would like to have, right? So that's incredibly disruptive because that's an indication that this technology is really kind of climbing the skills ladder. So that's kind of the top side of it. And with that, you see other examples like uh, radiology. There are already systems yeah. that have shown in some cases, at least, can outperform human doctors, you know, at recognizing evidence of cancer in, in a medical image. And, and that's something that will get better and better. Massive impact on Wall Street as well. You've got algorithms that are very, very sophisticated doing automated trading algorithms that can tap into machine readable news sources that are published by companies like Bloomberg, for example, you know, actual news sources that are intended for algorithms rather than for people. And these mm. algorithms can trade on that within tiny fractions of a second, much faster than any human being could even reach for a button to press. It's already said and done as far as the algorithms are concerned. So we're seeing that that impact on what you would call knowledge work, intellectual work, the kind of jobs done by skilled workers. And then at the same time, of course, we're going to see a continuing impact in, in the area that most people expect to see more automation, which is the automation of blue-collar jobs, of less skilled work. And I'm personally aware of at least three, four companies that are working, for example, on fast food automation. Machines, robots wow. can make hamburgers or robots that are making pizza, this kind of thing. We're beginning to see robots and automation technology invade the retail space, right? So Walmart, for example, has just announced within the past couple of weeks that they're bringing thousands of robots into their stores, both to do things like inventory tracking and also materials moving in the back of the stores, doing things like moving inventory and stuff. So this is a developing phenomenon. The other big thing that's happening in the retail environment, of course, is that more and more of it is transitioning to Amazon, right? Amazon continues mm -hmm. to dominate. It's basically taking more and more business from brick and mortar stores. But what that means is that what once would have been traditional retail jobs and business are now going to migrate to Amazon distribution centers. And of course, once it's in a distribution center, it's in a controlled environment, and that's going to make it much more susceptible to automation. So I think that definitely one of the biggest things I expect to see over maybe the next five years or so is that Amazon warehouses, which are now still very labor intensive and are actually still kind of a bright spot for employment, one of the areas where we see employment growth, I think they will become vastly more automated as the robots in those environments become more dexterous, right? They become more capable. They become more able to do the things that human workers are now doing, like, for example, reaching onto a shelf and grabbing an item and putting it into the box to send to the customer. These are things that mm -hmm. have been a challenge for robots so far, but I do think that's changing rapidly. And in fact, this last Christmas season was the first time ever that Amazon has actually hired fewer temporary workers for that season than in the previous year. So it could be that automation is already beginning to sort of turn the curve there, right, to that maybe things are kind of reaching an inflection point there already. So I definitely expect this to become a much more bigger issue in the future. And the main point I make is that it's going to be across the board. So it would be a huge mistake to assume that it's only going to be less educated, blue-collar workers mm -hmm. that are going to be impacted. Because I said, a lot of this is really directed at more skilled forms of work that are nonetheless relatively predictable. That's exactly right. And one of the interesting things around the white color work automation was um, the other day I was having a chat to some people that work in, in digital marketing and they were talking about the concerns of creating enough content and the that they would like to be having content created at scale and for it to be personalized. And I brought up the point that with the amount of data that we have and the algorithms being developed, we are getting to a point where we, as you said, we already have content creation at scale that is largely automated. And then we can go even further and personalize it for the reader. And I saw their jaws drop as to for them to think that a problem that they have in terms of content creation can be automated. And that is, it's not only the blue color work being automated, it's definitely um, still a surprise for a lot of people. That's why it's so good for you to be doing your work and be doing this research and bring, bringing it to the people that need to hear it and start thinking about the impacts of this. 
Yeah, I do think it's just going to be a critically important issue. In many ways, you know, the single issue that I focus on the most is the impact on jobs and the economy, which I think is going to be massive. But there are also many, many other implications of this technology as regard to privacy and, and security and many, many other issues and even threats to democracy. I mean, we were just talking about content creation, which is an issue in terms of potential jobs that could be lost. But, but uh, there was a recent announcement I think a couple months ago from OpenAI that had generated, they created this incredibly sophisticated deep learning system that was able to generate basically narrative content. In other words, it was able to write. And the way it worked is they gave it one sentence that was the beginning of a story. And then they could give this system, basically tell it to continue the story based on this first sentence. And it, it became incredibly good at writing a very, very coherent narrative, so much so that they actually withheld the technology. They kept it under wraps because they foresaw that there was massive opportunity for misuse, that you could, for example, create instantly a billion fake Amazon reviews using this technology, or you could yeah. turn the whole internet into garbage because the thing is, it is creating narrative content that you can read and it makes sense. It reads like a person wrote it, but it can be total nonsense in terms of not being true or anchored in any reality. So it's just, it could basically be massive quantities of fake news. So there are all kinds of implications of this. This is technology that could be used in a very precise way to perform jobs that used to be done by people and that could have an impact, but it could also be misused in ways that would be, really be quite dystopian. So there are just huge issues here that we have to begin to contend with. And I think that we're really just beginning to have that conversation and most people are really still not aware of how advanced these technologies are becoming. So advanced. As you say, the impact that's coming is tremendous and across the board and on the blue collar work that you were saying on automating retail, fast food, obviously there's the driverless cars and trucks coming where I remember saying that on a state-by-state -state basis in the US, the number one job in the majority of the states is driving. Is that right? That's right. In 29 states, the most common occupation, or and specifically for blue-collar men especially, is actually driving some kind of vehicle, whether it's a truck or a taxi or a um, delivery vehicle. So it is a very, very common job. It's one of a relatively small number of what you would call middle-class blue-collar jobs, right? Where you, the kind of job that you don't need a college degree, but you can still have a decent income. So it's, it would have yes. a massive impact if those jobs go away. So I definitely think those technologies are coming. You know, we're going to see self-driving cars that will threaten taxi drivers and Uber drivers. And maybe even before that, we're going to see automated trucks and so forth. And I think that technology is inevitable. I do think that there's a lot of hype surrounding that, that it may take a bit longer than some people are saying. I mean, actually, uh, Elon okay. Musk just the other day said he's a year from now, he's going to have a million automated Teslas on the road. That's just over the top. I don't think that's going to happen. The technology is not there yet, but it is going to be coming within 10 years, maybe 15 years, something like that. I mean, these technologies are going to arrive. And so we really need to begin to think about the impact of that. 100%. And one of the things I like about your approach in the way that you look at the skills required in the future is that you separate it into two very clear camps in terms of the skills that will be required by humans as we move into this technology being more widespread. Could you tell us a bit more about what type of work will be left for humans or that people should focus on? Well, I think foreseeable future, given what we know about the capabilities of the technology today and how it's likely to evolve over the next couple of decades or so, I think that the jobs that are hardest to automate are going to be really in three categories. The first would be uh -huh. jobs that are genuinely creative, where you're thinking outside of the box. You're generating something entirely new. For the time being, at least, these are things that humans are better at than machines, although there certainly is research into this area. I mean, there are examples of creative computing systems. In my book, I give examples of, of systems that can write original symphonies and can do even basic electronic design using evolutionary programming and things like this. But for foreseeable future, I think if you've got the kind of job that's genuinely creative, where you're not doing something predictable, you're really generating something new, whether it's in the arts or engineering or corporate strategy or legal strategy or in these areas, I think that that's probably a relatively safe area to be in. Second area is things that involve really deep interaction with other people, relationship building, a need to really understand other people and build that relationship on a deep level. And this could be caring roles, like for example, a nurse, where you've got to have that empathy with the patient, or it might be in the business world, the kind of 
roles where you really need to build a sophisticated relationship with a client and understand that that client on a very deep level in order to meet that person's needs. I mean, those are the kinds of jobs that I think are going to be relatively safe. And then the third area, which generally is maybe a less interest to people that want to go to university and get a degree, are what you call skilled trade jobs, jobs that require lots of mobility, dexterity, visual perception, and flexibility in very unpredictable environments. So examples would be an electrician, a plumber, someone that's going to go and fix the wiring in some completely unpredictable environment where it's different every time. You can imagine a robot that could do that, right? But it's going to be a robot like C-3PO from Star Wars or something. This is not something that's on the horizon. This is probably implies artificial general intelligence or human-level AI, right? So it's not something I think we're going to see in the next couple of decades in any likelihood. So these are pretty safe jobs. And I think that one thing that is probably problematic about our current approach to education is we put really so much emphasis on going to college or university. And in fact, by doing that, we're training people for these knowledge worker, low-level analytical type jobs that are very predictable, that are exactly the jobs that in some ways are most easy to automate, whereas the jobs that are going to be safest are the electrician and the plumber. So we should probably put a lot more emphasis on apprenticeship type programs and skilled trade type programs, which is what you would see more in Germany than in the United States. So it's really a mistake to always assume that the solution to this is just more university-type education, because I think there's actually evidence to suggest that we maybe already send too many people to university. You know, many people don't thrive in that environment. And also what we see, if we look at college graduates in the United States, that between a third and maybe half of them are not finding jobs that leverage their education when they graduate, right? They end up working at Starbucks or something. We kind of really need to rethink our whole approach to this. And uh, one thing I also think is that just education is probably not going to be enough in the long run. And that's why, for example, I talk about a universal basic income as something that eventually we need to consider. Yes, that's right. And so could you tell us a bit more about uh, universal basic income, what it is, what the trials have been looking like, and any recent developments that you've seen? Right. So universal basic income, and I should say that there are several initiatives for the same range or same flavors. Universal basic income is one. Others are guaranteed minimum income and negative income tax. These are all kind of different variations of the same fundamental idea, which is that you give everyone in society at least a minimal level of income in order to guarantee that everyone has got at least a sustenance, a basic level of, of income that will allow them to survive even in the absence of a traditional job that provides that. And this is an idea that's been around for quite a while, way back in the 1930s. People wow. were talking about this. And in fact, it's often characterized as socialism or a very left-leaning idea. But in fact, that's not true. It was supported, for example, by libertarians and conservatives, people like Friedrich Hayek, for example. And the reason for that is that it's a very market-oriented approach to giving people a safety net, right? Rather than having government intervene in people's lives and create all of these social programs and so forth, you just give people money and then they can go out and they can participate in the market. So it's actually um, more of a libertarian or market-oriented approach to providing a social safety net. For that reason, it has been embraced by people across the political spectrum, both on the right and on the left. And that's one of the things that, that people are optimistic about the fact that it's an idea that's gotten lots of traction. But the fundamental idea, and right now the flavor of this that, that has the most attention is universal basic income or unconditional basic income, which means that you basically, without any conditions whatsoever, give everyone some amount of money every month or every citizen, say. And that's true regardless of what your other income is. And the reason you do that is it overcomes one of the biggest problems we have with the other forms of safety net programs that are out there, which is that those programs tend to create a disincentive for you to work or to do as much as you can. To visualize that, and you see this most evidently in countries like in Scandinavia, where they have very generous social safety nets. So what you can have in that situation is that you have a person maybe working a job that's not very high paying. Maybe they're working at McDonald's, say. And then right next door to them, their neighbor is not working at all, but getting very generous unemployment benefits, say. And you might be in a situation where those two individuals, one working and one not, have incomes that are quite comparable. And so in that situation, the person that's going to work every day is going to say, wait a minute, why am I working? Because this person that lives next to me is just as well off as I am. And at yeah. the same time, the person that's receiving those benefits 
if that person decides, well, I'm going to go and work, even if I can only find a job that doesn't pay that much, it doesn't have an incentive to do that because if they do that, they're going to lose their benefits, right? So mm -hmm. it creates, in essence, a kind of a trap, what's often called a poverty trap if the income is very low, where people just don't have an incentive to do anything more. And, and the worst possible example of that is the Social Security Disability Program in the United States, which is actually intended, of course, to be for people that are injured on the job and can't work. But it actually nowadays is certainly abused by some people who are just desperate because they can't find a job. And so they apply for this program and maybe they claim they have a back injury, something that's kind of hard to verify. And they get onto this program so that they have a, at least a very minimal income and also health care. But once they do that, they can basically never work again because if they are even shown to be able-bodied, right, and capable of working, they risk losing not only their income, but also their health care. So this is the classic example of what you would call a poverty trap, where you get onto this program, but then that's it. You can never, ever, again, basically do anything productive in your life. People are even wow. scared of going and working in the garden because somebody might see them and say, hey, this person is not disabled, right? So the whole idea of a universal basic income is that you overcome that. What you do is you say, hey, we're going to give everybody an income unconditionally, and it's usually quite minimal. It could be most maybe $1,000 a month, maybe even less than that, but enough to give somebody a minimal income, but you give it to everyone. So that person that is working gets the income from their work, but they also get this basic income. So they will always be better off than the person that's not working at all. So if someone chooses to just take their basic income and stay home and play video games, yes, you can do that, but you're not going to have a very comfortable existence, right? You're certainly not going to be as well off as someone who gets that basic income is also working. And then, of course, at higher levels, as you earn more and more, there are going to be higher taxes to pay for this. And so basically, it's going to be clawed back at, at higher levels, right? So, But the key point is that at lower levels, where you're really at that point where the decision to work or not work comes into play, you don't destroy that incentive. And that's one of the main advantages of, a, of universal basic income. And that's why it's really getting a lot of traction right now, a lot of attention, because this concern that a lot of jobs are going to disappear because of technology is really putting a lot of focus on it. It's clearly going to enter the political sphere as well. Actually, there's a political or a, a Democratic candidate for president right now in the United States by the name of Andrew Yang, who is actually running on this platform. He's not one of the main contenders, but he has, has gotten quite a bit of traction online. I think he's polling at something like 3% right now. And that's yeah. enough that he's qualified for the debate that's going to come up in uh -huh. June among the Democratic candidates for president, right? Of which there are a huge number, I think over 20 now, but he will actually get on television with people like Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders and all the rest. And we'll have an, a chance to talk about this, right? And that's, I think, going to really bring a whole new level of attention to it. So a lot of people that maybe have never really been exposed to this idea are going to begin to really start to think about it. So I think that's a great thing. A number of countries throughout the world have run small-scale experiments with this. There are experiments, I think, uh -huh. in the Netherlands right now. Finland had an experiment, which they actually shut down, but it did have positive results from the program while they tried it. It's been tried previously in Canada and, in, uh, and in, even in the US quite a while ago. So India is another country that's tried it. For the most part, the results have been promising in the sense that what they show is that most people don't just stop working and stay at home and do nothing. They take that additional income, they invest it in their family and in education and so forth, and they still try to do something productive, right? Maybe they want to start a business or something. I think that it's a very hopeful idea for the future. It's an idea that I think has lots of room for refinement and improvement. But my own thinking is that this is an idea that is almost inevitable eventually because of the coming impact of AI and robotics. It's going to become a very important idea of how we manage the future. That's right. I remember seeing that there's, I remember you saying that the number of new jobs being created is essentially decreasing over time new professions coming up. That's on one side. And on the other side, you also had a bit of a discussion around the incentives of a universal basic income. So it's not necessarily a blanket sort of the same for everyone, but that people would get incentives to do certain things. What is your thinking around this is kind of an idea that I've had, and I've written about it in my books, and I talked about it in my TED Talk. But I think 
rather than just having a plain vanilla universal basic income where we give everyone exactly the same amount of money, I think there are good reasons to think about building some explicit incentives into that, which means basically under certain conditions, pay people a little bit more. I think we should give everyone some minimal amount no matter what, but I think there should be an opportunity for people to maybe earn some more money. And I think the most important incentive would be for education, right? Because one thing I really worry about is that if we did give everyone a universal income, some people might look at that and say, hey, you know, why do I stay in school then? Especially if we enter a world where maybe in order to really leverage your education in the job market, you really need a lot of education. It gets harder and harder to find a good job where you really need a lot of technical skill. You really need that university degree, maybe even beyond that. And so a lot of people that are really not going to be equipped to pursue that are really more equipped to do what we would think of as average jobs. They might just look at that and say, hey, you know, why even graduate from high school? I'm going to get my basic income and maybe my prospects for really doing dramatically better than that are not that great. So why stay in school? And I think that would be disastrous. I mean, the last thing we need in this new century when things are going to move at such a disruptive pace when our whole society is going to have to deal with all of these new challenges. The last thing we need is sort of a dumbed down population and a less informed electorate, right, in terms of voters dealing with these issues and so forth. So I think it's really critically important to maintain the incentive for everyone to stay in school and study education, even on a lifelong basis, continue to learn throughout your life, regardless of your level of capability. It's something that you should always pursue and view as a goal at every level. And I think that maybe we should build that into our incentive structure and just pay people a little more in terms of a basic income if they're actually doing their best to undertake that. And there are other incentives you can imagine, maybe volunteering in the community, you know, rather than staying home, like I said, and playing video games or doing even worse things like drinking or taking drugs or whatever, you know, get out in the community, help other people. If people are willing to do that, maybe we should offer them something a bit more. So this is an idea that I've put out there. I think it's a valuable idea. Personally, I I wouldn't say that it's gotten huge amounts of traction. I think many people who are what you would call basic income purists would find it objectionable because they really think that everyone should get exactly the same amount of money and it's got to be absolutely conditional and so forth. And I'm willing to think that maybe we need to think a bit outside the box there. All of this does raise issues. For example, who gets to decide what the incentives are and things like that. Another issue is, Of course, the the vision here is that the universal basic income would increase over time, right? As society becomes more wealthy, you'd increase the level of that income so that people have a better standard of living. And I think that's obviously the vision. But then how exactly does that happen? One concern is that all of this stuff, the level of the income, as well as the incentives, if that idea eventually gets traction, do you want that to be part of the political process? Do you want politicians running on a platform of, hey, I'll give you more money? It seems like every politician from now until the end of time would be running basically on that platform, right, which might not be good. So another idea I put forward in my writing is that maybe we want to create sort of an independent sort of technocratic organization that would manage this, something like a central bank, something like the Federal Reserve in the United States that would maybe manage the level of the basic income and decide on if there were going to be incentives, decide on those incentives as well, rather than having that handled directly by politicians, which could be very ugly, I think. So that's another area where I think that we're going to have to make a lot of decisions on this. It's a very complex issue. It's a dramatically different approach than what we've seen in the past. And so I think it's going to be a long, involved discussion in terms of making this happen. But I think it's great that the idea is getting out there because one thing is that we don't know how fast this is going to happen, right? How fast is this technological disruption really going to occur? It might happen faster than is ideal, and that would put a tremendous amount of stress on both our economy and our society. So I think it's really important to begin to have this discussion so that we're maybe in a position to make this adaptation if we need to. This is so interesting. Tell me, from your perspective, what motivates you to do this work? It's so interesting and it's so important. What is your driver um, to spend your time focused on this? To me, it's a fascinating issue and I really enjoy what I'm doing. I think I'm very lucky to build kind of a career focused on thinking about these issues. I'm sure that many people would be happy to do what I'm doing. But beyond that, it's a critically important issue. I mean, this is going to be artificial intelligence in general is going to be one of the primary forces that shape the future. And I think that to some extent, that's still under-acknowledged. I mean, I think most people understand that there are other big forces out there, things like climate change, right? You will find a lot of people focused on that, but not so many on this 
workforce, which is also going to be incredibly important and is, of course, going to intertwine with things like climate change and really shape the future. So we need to be thinking about all of these issues. And so what I try to do is really get people thinking about it so that more and more people can engage in this conversation. And I think it's a bit scary also that it's kind of happening at a time when our political system is becoming extremely polarized. There's a lot of anger out there between people on the left and people on the right. It's becoming very ugly. In some ways, it's becoming very hard to have a civil conversation. Even if we were at a relatively politically stable time when people could engage in the political process normally, this would be scary in terms of the extent of the disruption. But for it to have it come at a time when in the United States, we, we really can't do anything politically. And you see the same thing in the UK and I think to some extent in Europe as well. It's really quite scary for all these things to be coming together at one time that it could really create kind of a perfect storm that I think is just going to be quite scary for our whole society. So I think it's really important to try to cut through all that and have a meaningful conversation about all of this. And tell me when you, through your work, when you're looking into the future, what is the time horizon or time horizons that you generally look at and think about? And how do you go about extrapolating the current trends into how that could be in the future? It's a hard question to answer. And what I normally say when people ask this is that I think within 10 to 20 years, maybe 15 years, this is going to be incredibly disruptive. It's going to be unambiguous. It's going to be obvious to everyone that this is a big transition. Many people view that as a relatively conservative view. And I try to be a bit conservative because I think there's a danger in being overly aggressive because people will say, if I say it's going to happen in five years and it doesn't happen, people will dismiss it. That's a mistake we always make. We always tend to overestimate. And I think this has been said many times, but we tend to overestimate the impact in the short run and underestimate the impact in the long run. So I think it's an incredibly important disruption is coming. It is possible it's going to take a little bit longer than some people are saying. So I tend to think on maybe a 15-year time frame in terms of when it really becomes a huge issue, but I could be wrong. As I said, Elon Musk just a couple of days ago said he's planning to make Teslas fully autonomous within a year. Tesla owners will be able to press a button. There'll be this robot taxi service comprised all of Teslas going around a year from now, and there's going to be a million cars basically doing what Uber does, except there's going to be no one in the car. I personally think that's way too aggressive. I would be extraordinarily surprised if anything like that happens. I don't think the technology is here yet. On the other hand, in theory, Elon Musk knows more than I do, right, about the technology that Tesla has. So is it possible I'm wrong? Yes, it's possible. I think it's unlikely. But if he's even close to being correct about that, then my 15-year prediction is probably way too conservative, right? Then maybe it's more like five years then that you, you have to entertain that possibility, right? And that's why I think that it's really important to begin this conversation now because I can say 15 years, but of course, I don't know. I don't know if it's going to be 15 years or 10 years or four or five years. It could happen much more rapidly than what we think. And, and there's no doubt that if within just a few years, we're really going to have fully autonomous cars, then it's going to happen a lot faster than what I'm suggesting, right? That risk is certainly out there. It's a non-zero risk, right? Yeah, definitely. One of the things that I like about your work is that you mentioned before as well, around the, the skills required for the future, around the creativity, the interpersonal skills, and then the jobs that need a lot of dexterity and manual uh, labor. It's definitely a great point of view to bring forward into this conversation because, as you were saying at the moment, a lot of the focus is on going to university and, and on getting STEM skills, the science, the maths, the technology. So do you see that uh, with the rise of artificial intelligence, do you see that that is going to decrease the level of technical skills required in order to operate, say, a business in the future? I don't know. I, I remember saying when uh, Microsoft bought GitHub, uh, one of my thoughts was they're going to be taking all the code from GitHub. And with AI in a few years, you might be able to speak to a computer, describe the type of web application or web product that you want or mobile app. And the AI would be able to build that for you based on all the code coming from GitHub. And as a result, you'd have a lot more people being able to go into entrepreneurship because of AI essentially decreasing the technical hurdles and making people more productive. Is that some of the effects that you see coming in the future? Well, definitely. I think routine software development, computer programming is one area that's going to be susceptible to automation. I mean, I know a number of initiatives, even DARPA is working on this. So when I hear people say, well, the solution to this is to teach everyone to code. 
I'm very skeptical of that. Even some countries are teaching second graders to code or something, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, maybe everyone should have an understanding of how to program a computer, given the importance of technology in our society and everything. But to assume that that kind of thing is going to solve the job market problem, I think is something I would be very skeptical of. I mean, of course, you know, routine computer programming is already susceptible to offshoring, right? It can be done by lower wage workers in other countries already. So in general, I wouldn't discourage anyone from studying STEM if they're interested in that and passionate about it, and that's what they want to do, absolutely. Technical skills are going to continue to be important, even more so maybe in the future. But what I do think is that in general, the impact of artificial intelligence and automation technology general is going to be the same across all kinds of fields. Basically, what happens is it makes everything look more winner take all in the sense that if you're just doing routine, nuts and bolts, predictable stuff, regardless of what area you're working in, that's going to be susceptible to being taken over by computers, by technology. If, on the other hand, you're doing high-end stuff, you're doing something creative, you're at the top end, you're really adding value, you're in a position where you're able to leverage this technology and really add value with it, then you're going to be in a position to do very well. And that's true whether you're doing STEM, whether you're doing science or engineering, or whether you're doing accounting or law. The people that really are at the top and in a position have the best, highest level creative skills to leverage the technology are going to do very well. It's really the people doing the routine work, the nuts and bolts people are really going to be impacted. And that's going to be true across the board. So the best advice is probably to do something that you think you're going to be very good at, but something that you really enjoy and that you can be one of the best in the field that is probably the best recipe for success. And that's true whether the thing you're going to be best at is theoretical physics or art or working with children or whatever. Do the thing that really leverages your skills the most. But in general, I certainly wouldn't discourage anyone from doing STEM, but I would say having everyone try to do STEM is not going to solve the problem because sure. you know there aren't going to be that many jobs and not everyone is going to be good at it. Again, I, I kind of imagine a future where maybe eventually a universal basic income offers everyone a basic level of security. And as a result of that, people have more choices. And among those choices might be the choice to be an artist. We always hear this phrase, starving artist, right? Because basically the market doesn't allow for so many people to be artists and make their living that way. Maybe in the future, more people will be able to make their living that way. Those people also will contribute to society, right? To our civilization. And I think that can be seen as a positive thing. 100%. Very, very true. I wanted to ask you a bit about your latest book, Architects of Intelligence, where you interviewed all the greats in the field. Could you tell us about how this book came about and what are the main topics that you tackle in this one? Right. So the idea from this book actually came from the publisher, Pact Publishing. Mm -hmm. They contacted me and some people there had worked on a previous book a number of years ago called Founders at Work, which was a series of interviews with the founders of the big tech companies, like way back in, I think it was in the early 2000s, companies like Yahoo and so forth. And that was quite a successful book. And their idea was to do something similar for the field of artificial intelligence. And I thought, wow, that's a really good idea because this is just going to be an incredibly important technology. And this is a chance to effectively get inside the minds of the absolute top people in the field. I think that's important because there is a lot of hype out there, right? Right? There's some fear mongering. There's a lot of people speculating about artificial intelligence who really don't have a strong grounding in the field, don't necessarily know that much about it. So what I wanted to do was talk to, it turned out to be 23 of the people that really are at the absolute top of the field, the people that know the most about this technology, and ask them about how the field is evolving, how they see the future of artificial intelligence, You know, what particular technologies are going to be most important, how's it going to progress in the future, and also talk about some of the biggest risks and challenges and opportunities in the fields. This includes things that have, I think, been a bit overhyped, like existential risk, where are the machines going to take over in the future and threaten us all and so forth. You know, the things that you've heard people like Elon Musk talking about and the late Stephen Hawking and so forth. So I wanted to really kind of drill down into all of these issues with these people and, and basically get a record of, of their thoughts on these issues. And I think for me, at least, it was a very fascinating project. I, I feel extraordinarily uh, privileged to have had gotten to talk to all of these people. It's fantastic. And tell me, during the process, and then as you were finishing the book, what surprised you about the that came out in the conversations? I guess maybe the biggest surprise was just the lack of agreement on a lot of the big issues in artificial intelligence. And, and that what it tells me is that this is really a wide open field. I mean, these are the people that know the most 
and yet they really don't agree on a lot of things that are really important. Like, for example, what are the key technologies? What is the path to what is still really the holy grail of artificial intelligence, which is human-level AI, right? A machine that can think at the level of a human being. How do we get there? How long will it take to get there? What are the implications of that? And what should we worry about in terms of that happening? There's just a very, very wide range of opinions about that among these people. And to me, that was maybe a bit surprising because it suggested, I think, in comparison to other fields, like maybe physics, where I think you would have at least a basic level of agreement on some of the central issues of the field in artificial intelligence, you really don't have that. You know, it's pretty open. That is actually really, really interesting. All those disparate views, what impact does that have on your work as a futurist? It just reinforces one of the main things that I always keep in mind that I think there should be a lot of humility in being a futurist focused on artificial intelligence because it's extraordinarily unpredictable. I mean, we just don't know what the future looks like. I mean, we can begin to speculate about it. We can try to get kind of a handle on the primary forces that are going to unfold and what the biggest implications of that are going to be. But beyond that, in terms of making really specific predictions, I think it's almost kind of a fool's errand. And I think that we really need to have some humility there because even the smartest people working in the field aren't able to make specific predictions in many cases. So I think that we should always keep that in mind. And that, to me, that underlies the importance of having this conversation relatively early, because we just don't know exactly how it's going to pan out, what it's going to look like over the next 5, 10, 15 years and beyond, and how fast it's going to develop. And so we really need to begin to have that conversation now. 100%. So as you, do, you were doing the interviews, you had people essentially say that deep learning is the way to go to continue into the future and that it'll continue to evolve and help us create essentially a better world through AI. Other people were saying that there will be new techniques and new approaches that will be required to be developed in order for artificial intelligence to keep improving. How do you see the field today in terms of the focus today and the focus coming into the, the future? Right. I mean, that's one of the most important questions going forward. Um, There's no question whatsoever that right now, deep learning is the biggest thing happening in artificial intelligence, right? It is the thing that is driving all of the amazing breakthroughs that we've seen. So the work that DeepMind has done, AlphaGo, AlphaZero, you know, these are things that you've heard of. The work that OpenAI is doing. A lot of the examples I gave about the radiology systems that can read medical images and and detect cancer, all of this is being driven by deep learning, as is progress in self-driving cars, right? So when Elon Musk made his claim that we're going to have self-driving autonomous cars in a year, as I said, I don't think that's going to happen, but he's basing that on deep learning, basically. So without question, this is the biggest thing happening in AI right now. I think everyone would acknowledge that. And in the book, I talked to most of the really, really prominent people working in that. I talked in particular to three people that just won the Turing Award, right, which is the um, basically the Nobel Prize of computer science. And the three individuals I talked to are Jeff Hinton, Jan LeCun, and Joshua Bengio, who are sort of called the godfathers of deep learning. So they're all interviewed in the book, as is Demis Hassabis, the, the CEO of DeepMind, and Andrew Ng and Fei-Fei Li. These are all deep learning people, right, that are very, very prominent in the field. And they all believe very strongly in the future of this technology. And they think that it's core to the future of AI and that probably someday when we have human-level artificial intelligence, that will arise as a result of refinements and improvements to systems that are fundamentally based on deep learning. But then there are many other people I talked to in the book that have a more general view. They all acknowledge the importance of deep learning, but they also have backgrounds in other areas, in in other areas of artificial intelligence, like um, symbolic manipulation and so forth. Or they have have backgrounds in in the study of human cognition. For example, Josh Tenenbaum is a guy that that is really famous working at MIT that's done a lot of work on AI and also on the way children learn. Gary Marcus is another one that's been very critical of deep learning and and the fact that it's very brittle or rigid and has also done a lot of work with children and with human cognition. And these people believe that there are a lot of other ideas in more traditional areas of AI or in human neuroscience and psychology they're going to have to be brought into the field of artificial intelligence before it can really progress to the level of achieving something that begins to look like human-level intelligence. And that's a big debate and a conversation. And I think it's going to be fascinating to see how that evolves, basically. But these are incredibly smart, accomplished people that have very different views. 
in many cases, disagree vehemently um, in mm -hmm. terms of what's really important. I think that's fascinating to see. Again, I think that points to just how unpredictable all of this is going to be. We don't really know where the next breakthroughs are coming from or when they're going to occur or what they look like. And that is what makes the field very exciting and very unpredictable. 100%. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And was there any, any discussion around the amount of data required for, at least for deep, deep learning in terms of the new type of systems and the availability of that data for more people than just sort of big tech players that have been able to acquire the data over time? So, I mean, that's obviously a real issue. Deep learning as it exists today is very dependent on massive amounts of data, right? It's really, in fact, if you look at the companies like Google and Facebook, what you see is that they actually give their software, their algorithms away, right? Then systems like TensorFlow, for example, it's actually open source, but they certainly are not going to give their data away. So actually most of the value of artificial intelligence right now is really encapsulated in the data more than the algorithms. It's really the data that really drives everything. And so many people say the big tech companies, because they control such vast amounts of data, are going to continue to dominate the field. And there, there's certainly a strong argument there. I think that for the foreseeable future, that's likely to be true. Um, one other point that has been made by people like Andrew Ng, who I also talked to, is that, however, data is also verticalized. So many other industries control lots of data. So think in terms of the health insurance industry, for example. They've got huge amounts of patient data, right? I mean, Google doesn't have that. So the value from all of that data is going to be controlled by health insurance companies or hospitals or something, and not by Google necessarily, right? Even though Google might provide the algorithms that are used. I mean, all the data is not focused on the tech giants. If you're talking about social media or web search, then it, then it probably is. But there are many other areas of the economy where there's lots of data as well, and that's distributed across different industries. And still another point is that there definitely are a lot of initiatives underway to build AI systems that can operate on what's called sparse data, right? In other words, that are less dependent on vast amounts of data, which is to say more similar to the way humans learn, right? I mean, we're able to learn from effectively much smaller amounts of data in terms of training data, at least. I mean, human beings can learn to do something just from doing it a few times, right? Unlike a deep learning system, which needs to do it a million times, say, in order to use something like reinforcement learning. So there are definitely initiatives underway that can build systems that can learn from less data. And this may become more and more important in the future, and that perhaps may, will decrease the advantage that the big companies have. But I think for the foreseeable future, they're going to continue to have a, play a very dominant role. But that's an, a really interesting point about the data is in lots of different industries. And for example, in the UK a couple of years ago and in Australia this year, I'm, I'm based in Australia, we're having some legislation come in that's called around open banking. And the idea is to open up bank data. So I, as a customer, as a consumer, I can move my data from one bank to the other to ideally increase competition and the provision of services. So obviously that's making banking more of a commodity and putting the control of the data back on the consumer's hands, which ideally, obviously, mixed with the rise of AI, we can have better recommendations, better understanding of customers, and more personalization come out as a result. It's interesting to see it in the opening up of data in other industries. That's going to be a huge issue going forward is control of data and whether we all control our own data in some way. And you hear there's certainly been speculation there could be an entirely new industry rise in the future of sort of uh, data banks, right? But, you know, some sort of companies that operate as an intermediary to essentially hold your data for you in some secure environment to make sure that you control it and so forth. So I think this will be a huge issue going forward. But I think it will continue to be true that artificial intelligence is going to be the primary technology that extracts value from that data and really is what makes data incredibly important going forward. Definitely. And in the book, you had some people that have, that obviously are very prominent, but they've taken maybe conservative view to AI or maybe have warned about the dangers and the potential negative implications. Obviously, one of them is Nick Bostrom. Tell me, what did you see as the possible negative implications of AI? What were some of those themes coming through the book? Right. There definitely are some things we, we need to worry about. 
That's for sure. I, in general, in terms of the dangers or the fears associated with artificial intelligence, I kind of divide them into two categories, right? And the first category is the things that for sure are happening, things that are already becoming evident now, and that we're definitely going to have to worry about in the next five years and beyond. And that includes susceptibility to bias, right? We've already seen algorithms that are biased based on race and gender. I mean, uh, companies have used algorithms to screen resumes, for example, in, in hiring decisions that have been proven to be biased. Even in some cases in the criminal justice systems, there was one algorithm shown in the United States to be racially biased that was used to decide if people should get parole from prison and so forth. So this issue has come up. It's a real issue. And yet the field is very much aware of this, though, and they are working on it giving it, I think, a lot of priority. And I think there's a hopeful note there in the sense that now it's been recognized and that people are working on it. We can imagine a future where algorithms are actually less biased than people, because I think fixing bias in an algorithm, and, and again, it should be said that no one sets out to write a biased algorithm, I don't think. It happens because the bias is encapsulated in the data, right? Because the data is coming from people and therefore it incorporates their biases. And then a, a machine learning algorithm operates on that data and picks up the bias from the data. That's what's happening. But people are recognizing that and setting out to fix it. And it's probably a lot easier to fix it in an algorithm than it would be in a human being, right? So we can imagine a future where these types of decisions are made with the assistance of algorithms, and maybe that means less bias and not more. So there's actually a, a positive note there now, I think, that this issue has been recognized. Other immediate fears, I think maybe the most important in the near term is security, the fact that a lot of these AI algorithms are susceptible to hacking or they're susceptible to what are called adversarial attacks, where basically fake data can be presented to them in a way that causes them to misfire. These are all real concerns because as we begin to rely on these algorithms more and more, we turn more and more of our decisions, more of our systems over to artificial intelligence, more systems become automated, there aren't people in the loop directly controlling things anymore, then it becomes more and more critical that these systems become secure, right? I mean, just imagine, to give one example, that we've got self-driving trucks delivering all the food to grocery stores, right, throughout our society. And then someone hacks into that and brings those to a halt. And suddenly there's no food anywhere, right? I mean, this is a big problem, obviously, right? So it's critically important that these systems be secure from cyber hacking, from cyber attack, from cyber warfare, whether it's criminals or terrorists or countries that are adversaries to us. I mean, this is, I think, maybe the number one issue that we have to really think about in the near term in terms of artificial intelligence. And yet another thing that, that many people that I talk to are really passionate about is weaponization, concern right. that AI could be used to build autonomous weapons, fully autonomous weapons that can basically kill people without any human being authorizing that. This has become a concern. You, you've heard there was a big blow up at Google recently over a project for the Pentagon, right? That a lot of people protested that and Google actually said they weren't going to continue with that. And it's a very complex issue that has got, I think, many sides to it. But a lot of AI researchers are very passionate about not working on these kinds of projects. Thousands of developers, including many of the people I talked to in the book, Architects of Intelligence, have signed an agreement not to, ever, to never work on this. So I think that's a very complex issue. I actually think personally that probably it's important for the artificial intelligence community to cooperate with the U.S. military on these issues, because if they don't, that's going to create a real asymmetry with China, for example, which clearly is using these technologies. So I, I think that it's important for AI experts to be part of that conversation, if only to make sure that AI is used in ethical ways in the military and security sphere. But it's a very complicated issue that's very divisive, and it's an important conversation again for us to have. So again, those are a range of issues that fall into that first category of things that are definitely happening. And then the yes. second set of issues concerns things that I, I think at this point are still clearly science fiction. And this is the concern, what's called the alignment problem, the control problem, where you imagine that someday there's going to be a superhuman intelligence, an AI that is not just at human level, but beyond that, smarter than anyone else on the planet. And uh, do we need to then worry that it gets beyond our control, right? That we can't control it, that it starts doing things that are not in the interest of the human race. And this is the kind of issue that Nick Bostrom is concerned about and working on. And I think this is a legitimate issue. It's something that you can't dismiss it as a real concern. I don't think you should laugh at it or make fun of it, but I also think that it lies pretty far in the future and that we shouldn't be so obsessed with this 
futuristic issue that we lose track of the issues that are important right now, right? And that includes the things I just mentioned in terms of the risks and also maybe most importantly, the impact on the job market and the potential inequality, because these are things that are coming at us right now. We don't want to lose track of these issues because we're worried about the AI that's going to take over in the future. And I also think that the issues that people like Nick Bostrom raise are real concerns, but I also think that there are smart people working on this, people like Nick Bostrom and the other people at the Future of Humanity Institute and, and the people at OpenAI, right, which is a whole organization founded to focus on this. So there are really smart people working on this problem. I think that the allocation of resources to this is probably pretty appropriate at this point. I don't think we want that this should be a massive government concern right now. I don't think we want Donald Trump weighing on in on this or tweeting about mm-hmm. superintelligence. Doesn't seem like something he knows a lot about. So I think it's okay the way it is now with that second futuristic issue. I think that our primary focus right now should really be on these nearer term, much more pragmatic issues that are really likely coming at us within the next few years. That's right, definitely. And how much for you personally in the spectrum of AI can take us to utopia and the other end of the spectrum being AI will kill us all. Where do you sit personally? Well, what I always say is that in the long run, I'm an optimist and I absolutely believe that artificial intelligence can be one of the best things that has ever happened to humanity. And I mean that in terms of bringing future prosperity, maybe ultimately creating a world like on Star Trek, right, where we've got this abundant future where people don't have to go to some job, this drudgery in order just to survive. You know, the people have more choices and they have a generally a better life. And, and also in terms of some of the biggest problems that we face, things like climate change, clean energy, disease, These are all things that artificial intelligence is going to be an incredibly important tool in order to solve these problems. But I do think that we have to have open eyes and have an honest conversation about the challenges that are going to come with this technology, in particular in terms of the inequality that it can create. The fact that a lot of jobs, maybe whole categories of jobs are likely to disappear, that is going to be very disruptive to the economy. And I think that navigating through all of that is going to be very difficult. And I I really worry about a crisis as a result of this in the near to medium term. And so I think that in the kind of short term, I'm, I'm a bit pessimistic and I worry a lot in terms of what this means for society. But once we get through that and figure out a solution to that, and I think we will, we have no choice. We will figure it out eventually. Then I'm, I'm much more optimistic. I think that we can leverage AI on behalf of everyone. But I do think we are entering a relatively challenging time when things are going to move very fast and we're going to have some real challenges that are not going to be easy for us to solve. Definitely very true. Tell me one of the many reasons why I enjoy your, your work so much. It seems to me that it's very factual and that you do a very detailed, very broad-based scan and you focus exactly on the facts, you provide those, and you point out where the facts show that we're going in wrong directions. But you don't push for solutions, and you're not saying, this is what we need to do. You're saying, we're going down the path that leads us here. Here are some possible alternatives. Let's have a conversation about it. Is it difficult? How do you find it being that unbiased and being able to remove yourself? I think a lot of people would naturally fall or would fall into the category of trying to push solutions are saying, this is what I think the world should be like. Let's all go for my vision. While you seem to provide all the evidence and the paths forward without that bias, how do you do that? I mean, in some sense, I'm biased. And you know, I do, I've advocated for a universal basic income and given some basic ideas about how it looks. But I'm pragmatic enough to know that there's almost no point in me coming up with a very specific set of policy proposals, okay? This is something that we're all going to work out. And I assume that I kind of view my role as getting more people to think about this and engage in this conversation. And I think Andrew Yang, I mentioned earlier, who's running for president, is a good example of that. Andrew actually read Rise of the Robots and and I think started thinking about this and then wrote his own book. And I've met him a couple of times and he's got a much more specific set of policy proposals than anything that I've put forward. And he, you know, what he's doing may or may not be exactly the right thing to do, but he's a different animal, right? He's a politician. He's trying to run on this and take a much more activist approach. And there are many other activists out there as well that have much more specific proposals. And I think that's great. I think what we need is lots and lots of ideas. And those ideas are going to get 
thrown out there and somehow as a result of a very ugly process that people have compared to making sausage, right, we're going to end up with some kind of solution. But one thing I do advocate strongly for is uh, I think we need more pilot projects with things like basic incomes. We need more experiments. The reality is we just don't know the answer. I don't think we have enough data yet to really understand exactly how these programs would operate if we, we really tried them at scale. And so I'm very much in favor of the kinds of things that were done in, in Finland, for example, where they actually tried this. Y Combinator, which is an incubator here in the United States in the Bay Area, is also trying its own basic income program, just as an experiment. I think we need a lot more of that so that we learn more about how we can put all of this into practice. So that's sort of how I see my role. And I think it's great that other people are going to take on somewhat different roles and try to push specific policies because eventually, of course, we're going to need that. This is something that ultimately will have to enter the political sphere. And as I said, we might see that at least begin to happen here in the United States in this next uh, presidential election campaign. To some extent, this will be an issue that will be out there. And we may even see the top presidential candidate, you know, people like Joe Biden, right, begin to talk about this, which will be pretty amazing. So maybe this is really the point at which it starts. That would be phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. And definitely, as you're saying, that the sooner the better that we start having this conversation and start collaborating and, and debating about the world that we want to create with this technology that is outstanding. This interview has been excellent and it's been a true honor having you on the show and being able to speak to you about these issues. I only have one last question for you. That is, what would you recommend to the listeners to keep in mind during their careers going forward? Uh, what would be either a, a takeaway for them or something that you would like them to keep in mind as they, they continue in their journeys? Well, the two pieces of advice I always give is in terms of your own career, just remember that you don't want to be doing something predictable. If you're coming to work and you're doing something that another person could figure out how to do by watching you work or by studying what you've done in the past, there's a good chance that's going to be automated away at some point, right? And it doesn't matter if you have a PhD, if you're doing that, right? So just try to avoid predictable things. That's advice I think that's generally applicable to anyone, regardless of what you're doing. And the second thing is to be aware of this in a political sense and in a humanistic sense. I mean, it's great to give that kind of advice to people in terms of their own career, but I think it's pretty obvious that not everyone is going to succeed in following that advice, right? Not everyone is equipped to do something creative, something outside the box. Some people are best equipped to do routine things. And so I think it's really important to realize this is going to have an impact on society. A lot of people are going to be left behind. We're going to have to do something about that eventually. And it would be better if we can do something relatively soon and in a way that things don't get too ugly, right? So I think it's really important to everyone to have an open mind. Even if you're more of a conservative, libertarian type person, you're generally not in tune with the idea of having a safety net, this kind of thing. Try to be a little bit more open-minded as you really think through the implications of this, because uh, I think if we don't find a way to address this as a society, then we're all going to suffer for it. It's not just going to be groups of people that are left behind. It's really going to be everyone that's going to be impacted by this. That's the main thing to avoid. You're absolutely right. Martin, thank you. Thank you so much again. Uh, this has been an absolute blast. Thank you so much for all the work that you do, for putting your, your ideas and your research out there and helping us all have the conversations that we need to be having. Thanks a lot for having me. It was a great conversation. Thanks so much. Data Source Services is Australia's leading executive search and recruitment provider to the data and analytics industry. Data Source is chosen by many of Australia's most successful and innovative analytics teams, working closely to understand customer needs and deliver the top performing candidates in the Australian market. From executives and directors through to project managers, BAs and technical specialists, our deep networks allow us to source the highest calibre of candidate. Our consultative and personalised approach to the recruitment process ensures the highest level of service and care across both contracting and permanent roles. Whether you're looking to hire or searching for your next career move, please contact will at datasourceservices.com.au for more information. Exciting news, listeners. University of New South Wales has launched a new Master of Data Science and it's 100% online. They have designed this program to deliver the skills that are in the highest demand and most difficult to find. It covers the advanced stats, programming, machine learning, and strategy areas you need to be able to call yourself a true data scientist. To find out more, visit studyonline.unsw.edu.au. 
that brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.